Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I'm honored and pleased to have the extraordinary Girl Writes What? 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 Girl <laughs> Writes What? Uh, a YouTube, can we dare we say, sensation. Uh, and um, I think a very powerful and compassionate and rational thinker and communicator. Highly recommend her channel at youtube.com forward slash Girl Writes What? Is that the right channel? I, I, yeah. That, that okay, sense. excellent. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time. Uh, I've really been enjoying your videos. It's interesting because, I mean, people have suggested that, that we have a chat, which I, I think is a good idea. Yeah. And uh, through watching some of your videos, I've never given a huge amount of thought to gender issues in the way that, that you present them. And I know, I don't know if it's called the men's movement or the men's rights movement or whatever, but the idea of a true equality, uh, an empirical equality between the genders has always seemed to me to to be a very good idea. But what's your history in this area? And how did you do? Do you think there were things that contributed to to the genesis of your approach to these topics? Um, well, I suppose I've, I've always sort of uh, right from the get go, I've been kind of an anti-feminist, uh, like right from the time I was in high school. And uh, because a lot of the things that uh, that they seemed to focus on just really did not make sense to me. And uh, it, the the equality of opportunity is something I can get behind. I mean, my, mo my mom uh, worked for a living and, and she was a quite, a, uh, pardon my language, but a kick-ass woman. And uh, my grandmother was a career woman. She was born before women even had the vote. And I think she only made it up to maybe grade three or something. And uh, she was an extremely well-respected, uh, successful woman in, in her career and uh, did the whole family thing and everything else too. Extremely busy woman, never sat down. And, um, but neither of them had any time or patience for feminism. You know, it's, what's all this then? There's things to do. And, uh, and so I, I was sort of coming at it with sort of this, oh, those feminists, they're, they're on again about like, you know, why don't they just go out and get those jobs? Why don't they just go out and tough it out like my grandmother did, competing against men and, and prove themselves um, or let women prove themselves now that they've had opportunities to do so um, without all the extra help and, and, uh, sort of the leg up, the extra funding, the extra protections and everything else. Um, cause you can't really prove yourself, uh, by only doing easy things or by demanding that they may be made easy for you. Uh, it's not the way that you get respect. And, uh, but I didn't really quite see how there goes my phone. Um, how harmful uh, some of the... Let's just wait for that to finish, and I'll just edit this part. Okay. Here, let me go get rid of it. <laughs> it's a virus. There we go. It's no one I want to talk to anyway, so. <laughs> but as I was saying, I never really looked at some of the harmful things that uh, that feminist theory has uh, has really led to. Um, 
the kind of domestic violence legislation that we have and uh, other aspects of our law uh, that are extremely discriminatory uh, against men and that it's legal to do that because they're not a protected class. They're not a, uh, our human rights legislation in Canada does not uh, consider men as a group to be uh, worthy of being included in our human rights legislation. So, you know, you have all of these issues that men are trying to get help for and they, they just hit a wall every single time. And a lot of that wall is feminist theory. And so let's, sorry, just before we go on, I just want to make sure because uh, with, without definitions, um, the, the language can be an empty vessel, which pe people can pump all sorts of emotional projections into. So when you talk about feminism, what's the definition that, that you would use uh, the, uh, in terms of the aspects that you, you are critical of? Um, I would say that anything that is, because uh, there's the dictionary definition of feminism, which is usually something along the lines of, you know, uh, a movement that wants to promote social, economic, and political equality for women. And that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, totally behind that. Um, when I say feminist theory, I mean uh, patriarchy theory, um, the ideas of male privilege, female gender depression, um, things like rape culture that, uh, that just don't seem to pan out when you actually look at empirical reality. Um, when you read studies that, uh, yeah, that ask the same questions of both men and women, that hold both genders to the same standards of uh, acceptable behavior. Um, you know, even things like how uh, forced sexual intercourse uh, perpetrated on a woman is considered rape, whereas if it's perpetrated upon a man by a woman, it's considered, uh, the CDC considers it other sexual violence. Uh, the FBI, even now with their new improved definition, doesn't consider it rape. And, uh, and then they... Uh, they put out these numbers saying, you know, one in however many women are raped and one in some ungodly huge number of men are raped, when in reality it's because they don't consider forced sexual intercourse perpetrated on a man by a woman to be rape. So when you define things so that men can't be victims of them, then of course you're going to have fewer or no male victims. And, and there is, of course, the, the aspect as well, um, the, the, the data that I've heard is that in terms of domestic violence, uh, I was just listening to the radio today, CBC, and um, they had uh, stories of domestic violence and how it's so hard to get out of violent relationships. Yes. And I thought I heard that it was going to be a man talking about his experience of domestic violence at the hands of a woman. Unfortunately, they had just disguised the woman's voice. And it was like, it was almost like, oh, of course it's going to be a woman. Like, why can't, because the statistics seem to be quite clear that when it comes to domestic violence. Uh, gender symmetry. Yeah. Gender symmetry. So women initiate domestic violence as often as men do. In, yet in you almost never see. More. Sorry, go ahead. In, in, in some cases more. Uh, I've read uh, some studies that indicate that severe unilateral violence, like the that really, really bad violence perpetrated by one person on a non-violent partner, um, 70, up to 70% of that is female perpetrated. Um, and, uh, and that women tend to, uh, in some of the studies, it's shown that they tend to instigate violence slightly more often than men. Uh, so that they're the ones hitting first slightly uh, more often than men are in those reciprocal 
reciprocally violent relationships. So and violence in lesbian relationships seems to be quite. It's um, probably you know when you can actually find studies that look into that. Uh, it's uh, you have lesbian relationships way up here with the amount of violence, and then het relationships, and then gay male relationships down here somewhere, and that may be uh, that may have to do with um, men tending to underreport uh, violence, and especially I would think if they're with a male partner. Uh, you know, a little shove is not something that they're going to really necessarily even be considered worthy of mentioning because um, they're just a little bit more physical to begin with. Right. And women tend to over-report uh, at times, over-report both their victimization and their perpetration. So Right. And also... Um uh, you know, when you hear the theory, as I think everybody who grows up in the West has, has heard the theory of you know, fairly incessantly, uh, that that um, that marriage is dangerous for women. When you actually look at these statistics, uh, it seems that like not even close, by far the safest place for a woman to be is in a long term committed partnership, whether it's marriage or not. But it seems to be where the least amount of uh, dysfunction occurs relative to, you know, live in boyfriends, cycling uh, boyfriends and so on. It's and and this again goes. The, the, the statistics seem to go quite counter to the theory, but the theory does not adapt to the facts, and that always raises my levels of suspicion a little bit. This is really uh, uh, what it boils down to: is is that I think that they broke Sherlock Holmes's first law, and he said, "What was it in his last minute? You never start with a theory. You you start with the facts, and then you build the theory." You don't start with a theory and then collect facts because then you're just looking for facts that conform to your theory. And that's really what most of the early research into domestic violence did. It looked at arrest rates. It looked at report rates. It looked at conviction rates. It, uh, it involved interviewing women who were, or the people who were in domestic violence shelters who were all women. And it looked at, it, it interviewed the people who were in domestic violence battery treatment programs who were all men because we do have this and this has been around since the Victorian times. I, I remember seeing a, uh, a cartoon in a paper of this huge uh, beefy matron in a dress just like the, just the most angry looking woman ever and she's carrying this skinny little guy, little guy, terrified looking guy under her arm, right, just carrying him along. And she's going up to the police officer and saying, I want my husband arrested for wife battering. Right? Because it's a joke, right? It's, it's always been a joke when a, when a man was, they'd call him henpecked or, or whatever. But, I mean, the, the whole matron wielding the rolling pin, all of that, that's been around forever. Um, this isn't, this reciprocal violence thing isn't a new thing. Um, it's been around forever. It's just when it happens, when a woman beats on a man, it's always been considered a joke, or he deserved it, or he should be able to handle it on his own. Um, or she's, never uh, she's struggling back against patriarchy and loses some of the moral responsibility for her own actions. Well, that that's what it became when patriarchy theory was sort of first uh, developed, I guess, in the mid-1900s as far as uh, like really fleshed out as far as uh, women have always been oppressed, men are the oppressors, you know, it's it's this whole huge power dynamic with men way up here and women way down there and uh, men created society uh, to uh, oppress women for the benefit of men 
and which just ignores so so many things, uh, so many facts, and so much oh. reality. But at the same time, plays on our instincts uh, as far as how we view men and women. Um, we view men as powerful because the ones who survive their role are generally the powerful ones, and uh, we view them as potential threats because that's how we've had to view them all through history, right? Like all the way back to two million years ago. And, uh, and we view women as requiring and being deserving of protection. So, right. Well, it's funny, um, just to sort of share my, the, the sort of the experience or the genesis of my experience of patriarchy. I mean, I come from a single mom household and like most kids who grew up in the seventies, um, the majority of my friends also came from single parent households. I mean, divorce rates went up like 300% in the seventies. And so my experience was, you know, I'm, I'm born into a world of, of women. Uh, yeah, that was my mom, that were her friends, my aunts uh, were home. The men were all out working. My initial experience of authority was almost entirely like, I can't even remember a single counter example, almost entirely feminine. And then I was in a daycare where uh, women were in charge and running everything. And then I went to, um, to school where the women were all teachers. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and, until I actually met a male authority figure, uh, it was quite a few years before I met uh, a male authority figure. And I just, I remember being told about the patriarchy sort of in my, my early teens and as, all I'd grown up in is this world where women run everything and women are the disciplinarians and women are responsible for, you know, when you go to bed, when you wake up, when you eat, when you sleep, when you crap, when you pee. And exactly. And somebody, somebody said to me, he said, you know, it, it, the world is patriarchal. And I'm like, yeah, you live in this I'm sorry, what society, right? And you're like, what do you mean patriarchal? It was, are they all in drag? I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I there's nothing but women running everything as far as I could see. Well, the thing is, too, is they've done studies and they've found that uh, it's women, uh, mothers, who teach, who are have the, the biggest influence on teaching sexist attitudes uh, to children, uh, gender roles, gender norms, um, and enforcing those. So it's, it's really, it made me really happy that I had a mom who was a tomboy. And uh, because she she wasn't interested in putting me in dresses. And I think I probably would have turned into a very, very angry person if I'd been forced into that as a child um, or making me play with dolls or anything like that. And uh, so, I mean, she was perfectly happy with me just getting on my bike with my buddy, uh, Darren, and, and riding all over the place and not coming home until I was hungry and playing with Legos and things like that. Um, but it, it really, it really definitely is women who control, uh, the teaching and, and the passing on of, of cultural attitudes towards pretty much everything. Um, well, and, uh, since the statistics, at least in, in the U S uh, seem to be pretty consistent that upwards of 90% of parents hit their children, given the fact that most of those parents are, are women, uh, mothers, uh, the, the, if you sort of expand the definition of domestic violence to include aggression, hitting, spanking, uh, or verbal abuse against children, then it seems indisputable. Again, I'm, I'm always open to counter arguments and counter evidence, but it seems indisputable that if we expand and extend the domestic, uh, the, the, um, definition of domestic and violent, uh, violence to include not just women dependent on husbands for which I'm sure there are, but children who are far more dependent upon parents than um, women are 
on husbands. I mean, women can leave husbands and get alimony and get child support and, and have a pretty uh, um, positive time of it in the court system relative to men. But children have no such option. So it seems that if we look at that and we want to help to break the cycle of violence, which I think is every just and moral human being's strongest, strongest desire to break the cycle of violence, it seems to me, and again, I'm happy to hear arguments of the contrary, it seems to me that we do have to, to, to turn the focus on on mothers and the degree to which they may be aggressive towards their children and how much that plays into the cycle of violence in society. Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I have spanked my children. Um, there, there were days, not very often, there were days, though, uh, maybe once every six months where, you know, after 10 timeouts, there's, you're just at the end of your rope. Um, and, and honestly, I think mothers probably tend to do that more than fathers, um, just on, on sort of a casual mundane, not the serious, you know, I'm going to belt you or whatever, but you know, a swat to the seat of the pants or something. Um, and I think it's because they don't, Men are more able to sort of walk softly and carry a big stick, but never have to use it. Um, right. So sort of a, just the shrieking of those, mom kind of thing. Just, just because of those of. instinctive ways that we see men and women. And I think those instincts are, are quite, I think that a lot of them are sort of there in the back of our heads, right from the word go. Um, that you just even, even when you're two years old, you know that if, the man snapped, he'd be able to damage you. You know, you, you need to be more intimidated by him. So he doesn't need to be as angry. He doesn't even need to get angry. Sort of, uh, he just needs to put on the stern face and say, please stop doing that. And a child will generally respond better to that than to all of the shrieking and, you know, that you could do as a mother. Um, and, and part of that, too, is, is the amount of time that kids spend with mothers and they feel very secure about secure in pushing boundaries and getting themselves into trouble. And, you know, she's not quite mad enough yet. You know, she hasn't lost her patience yet or whatever. But um, but I think I do think that because of those gender differences, just in the way we view men and women, um, men are going to have an easier time uh, just kind of crossing their arms and saying that's enough. Um than, than women do. And I think that this is one of the huge losses um, in sort of the breakdown of, of two-parent families is that you don't have that kind of quiet authority figure um, who's just kind of frowning as he's reading the paper and glances over and says, that's enough, kids, and they stop. Mm. Um, you just don't have that anymore. It's not available. So I, I, can, I can definitely see how a lot of single mothers especially, because I think that they are the biggest demographic um, of individuals uh, who abuse children. I can, I can definitely see why that is. Yeah, I was just reading in the New York Times that um, now a majority of women under 30 who are having children are having children out of wedlock. And I'm not a big fan of the government regulating marriage, but um, that's not great for kids. Uh, there are certain statistical arguments to be made that almost the biggest single determinant of negative results for children is single motherhood uh, on, on the parental side. And that's, that's, a, that's a big problem. Uh, and again, is, it's, it's not to say that's the only problem, but it's something that it, it really doesn't. Ever since Dan Quayle put his face into the cheese grater of the Murphy Brown <laughs> debate, what, 10 yeah. or 15 years ago, 
It's just something that nobody talks about. And that's really not a, not a good thing if we really care about children in the future. Well, the, the issue, too, is that a lot of people will say, well, but they're, they're being born outside of marriage. But a lot of them are being born in uh, cohabitation relationships. Um, but the problem with that is, as well, is that uh, relationships where um, a man and a woman are just living together don't tend to be as stable as marriages. Um, I think they have a five times greater likelihood, I just recently read, of breaking up. Uh, dissolving before the child is three years old. So, and and a many times greater likelihood of breaking up before the child is 15. So, well, and of course, sorry, just to point out that the, the, that's the break, but the cracks appear long before that, right? So it's not just the break at the age of three or 15, it's all of the stresses uh, that lead up to that, of the relationship sort of falling apart, so to speak. It is, it is. And I mean, this is probably one of the reasons why I, uh, I, I look back with my 2020 hindsight and I wish that I had made a clean break of my relationship uh, with my ex um, maybe about four years before I did. I, you know, I stuck it out. I wanted to keep my promise. I wanted to, and I felt, I felt responsible um, for him in a lot of ways. Uh, he's part of my tribe and you just don't cut somebody loose. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, you, we, you look at the divorce rate and it's uh, something like 70% uh, are initiated by women and 20% uh, of, uh, of divorces, so up to, up to 90%, um, are instigated by women. Like they, they will go out and they, they'll cheat or they'll, they'll just behave in unacceptable ways in order to convince, you know, push the husband into filing. And uh, so, I mean, really, women tend to want to be the ones to end marriage. And, and then when you look at the reasons that they give, um, you know, they don't tend to be like uh, abuse or, or adultery or even irreconcilable differences or, say, uh, like with me, where, you know, I was, we were financially just like going into the toilet and uh, to the point of I'm going to be recovering for about 10 years just from the last four years of my marriage. And, uh, but you, you, you don't have those kinds of reasons put forward by these women. You have, I wasn't satisfied. And uh, basically I wasn't 100% content. <laughs> so, and for this, they are going to break up their family, not the marriage, but the entire family. Well, and much to the detriment of their children, of course. This, this is really the thing. And, and then when you look at uh, some of them and how they are extremely irresponsible towards their children as far as facilitating the father's access to them, um, encouraging that relationship to continue... Uh, which is almost always, even in the case of somebody like my ex who just isn't not the greatest father, he's just not the most responsible person um, to begin with, um, my children benefit from their relationship with him. Uh, they know he's not, you know, a hero, um, but they do, they talk to him quite often. They, they talk to him online, they talk to him on the phone. Um, they saw him often when we were living close enough to do that. And, uh, and I, I like that. I like that they have contact with him. I like that they 
are engaged with him and because that's good for them, right? Uh, even if he's not the best role model out there, that's what's best for them is to have a dad that they know who cares about them and, and uh, even if he isn't perfect. So, but I think so many women, uh, they, they gatekeep, they, uh, I, and men do this too, but men don't have the uh, systemic power to, to, to make it a, a systemic social problem because they don't get custody to the same degree that women do. Um, so they don't, they don't get to play those games with access and put, you know, uh, conditions on, well, you can't see them if you don't this or that. Um, my boyfriend, his ex was, well, you can't, I won't have my daughter sleeping on a couch. So you have to get a bigger apartment so that she can have her own bedroom for the one night a week she stays there, which is just ridiculous. You know, I was sending my kids to stay at their dad's when he was living in one room. You know, right. So right. it's not the comfort; it's the contact. That, it is. Uh, it is. It's like need. so they're sleeping on the floor. It's okay. You we know? started in caves, so we can do that. <laughs> yeah. We have to, right? You can live in a cave, and you can still do it. I remember Desmond Morris saying, you know, uh, in one of his programs, you know, a, a baby would rather sleep in a hole in the ground with its mother. Yes. next to its mother than in the most beautifully appointed nursery in the world. That's and, very true. Uh, oh, he's the, uh, he's the guy who wrote The Human Zoo and uh, The Naked Ape. The Naked Ape, Ape yeah. Right, right. So, yeah. So, he, uh, can we just jump back to the, the spanking thing for a sec? Uh, because I'm always quite interested in that. I've, you know, made a commitment to, to not take that approach uh, with, uh, with my child so far. Uh, and <laughs> what are the circumstances where that, uh, that occurs for you or... Um, uh, sort of, you said it was sort of after a certain amount of um, of conflict. Uh, if you don't mind, and when when you have when you have a kid that that is just absolutely just um, acting out, acting out like we're talking every three minutes, you're dealing with this child um, and correcting their behavior um, for whatever reason. And what, sorry, what sort of behavior, just so I can follow that? Oh, getting into things, putting things in the light, in the, in the wall sockets, or, you know, because they could pull out the little safety thingies at a very young age. My daughter learned how to open the uh, cabinet locks. Uh, I put them on the cabinets when she was about 11 months old, and by the time I had three installed, she'd figured out how to open them. And um, so, I mean... Things like that, um, just really, any time that they're going to actually be a danger to themselves, um, and I know that the natural consequences of sticking that butter knife in the the, uh, the plug, wall yeah. socket, that, that that's probably going to hurt. You know, they can have uh, just a, and it's not even like I, because uh, they, they weren't designed to hurt. They were designed to jar the kid, you know, just kind of jar them. You know. Yeah, so it's it's not uh, it's not a physical pain situation like a pain no. aversion therapy. It's uh, just a startling kind of get yeah. them to go the other way. Like standing there and going boo. Um, I had my oldest. He had a real problem with timeouts. Um, I think he he was always kind of clingy, and uh, but then he was never a really badly behaved child either. So I don't even remember ever having to spank him, but uh, or feeling like I needed to spank him. But the timeouts, uh, the amount of crying that he would, and just, and he'd be just absolutely, you know, even just a minute, you know, alone 
for him was just an agony. He'd be, he'd still be <gasps> an hour later. So, you know, I had to sort of come up with ways to, uh, to deal with him where, you know, he was sitting in one spot, but I was never out of sight. And, and, uh, my daughter, she was, she was a danger to herself and everybody else for about five years. Um, she, she started walking at eight months and, uh, when she was 11 months old, I, uh, she was being quiet in the kitchen and I was, she's being quiet. There's trouble. And, uh, I go in there and the oven doors open and she's climbed up the oven racks and she's standing on the stove. And, you know, this is in three minutes of not being supervised. So, I mean, she was really, really, really into everything. And, uh, so she was, she was a bit of a handful, but, uh, Honestly, I, I I know I swatted their behinds a few times, but I can't really remember doing it even more than maybe four times each in their lives. Um, even with her behavior, and she was just, it was maybe because she was just completely fearless. Um, how old was, sorry if you don't mind, how old was she when you and your ex split? Um, let's see, that was in 2008. Eight, so she would have been. Um, I think she was thirteen, and my oldest was fourteen, and my youngest was six. Ah, okay, okay, because okay. so so, that's when she was very a very little kid. That this is many years ago. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it was ages ago, but um, but yeah, she was she was like a one one person doomsday machine. Um, <laughs> Like literally, uh, we were at Discovery Zone, and uh, which I don't know if they have them anymore, but you know, sort of like the big McDonald's play places with the tube slides and everything. Oh yeah, only about a hundred times that big, and uh, and they have this sort of mesh outside the out on the outside of it to keep kids from climbing on the outside of it, and. Uh, my son, I, I take them there, and my son was, I guess he was about three, and she was about a year and a half, and I let go of their hands, and within 30 seconds, my son's crying because it's like chaos, kids everywhere, and he's upset, and my daughter's gone. Like, she's just gone. I, I no longer see her. And then a couple minutes later, I see her whiz past on this bridge, and then she's gone again, and the next thing I know, there's gasps from all these parents, and I look up, and she's about 20 feet up on the outside of this play structure on the mesh. Climbing, That's not good. You know, and like at, at about 18 months of age, right? And she'd used the, the hilarious thing, there was a sign, a little wooden sign saying, do not climb on the outside of, play, on outside of the play structure or something like that, right? And she'd used that as a foothold to get up. And uh, I actually had to start climbing up after her before she would listen to me and come back down. Right. So, I mean, she was just extremely, uh, she was very body confident. She, she, I can climb that. I can jump from there. You know, she was, like I said, she's walking at eight months and, uh, and running a week later. So, I mean, she was a handful. She's definitely a handful. So, I'll give you uh, a brief overview of, of um, the, the challenges that I see in discussing sort of gender issues in the present 
as an idiot outside amateur, and uh, you can tell me tell me your your feedback on it because I know you've struggled. I know you've had some <laughs> significant criticism uh, about this area as well. For me, there's a great quagmire, a, a tar pit called victimhood. Uh, and <laughs> there is, you know, it, it's, it's really tempting, you know, because if you get victimhood, then you get moral excuses. If you get victimhood, uh, you get, get funding. <laughs> you get cookies. If you get victimhood, there's a lot of soft but kind of gross payoff uh, for, yes. for victimhood. And we've seen this with a number of, of groups within society, minorities and so on. I think the black community is doing some fantastic work at the moment saying, okay, like enough about the, the death by racism stuff. Yeah, okay, maybe racism is out there. It's something we need to deal with. But let's start fixing what we can control within our own communities first. Let's start having more intact families. Let's start investing more in our youth. Let's start, you know, fighting for better schools. Things that we can do something about rather than just, you know, we're just getting hell from Whitey from here to eternity. So and, in other words, they, they are seeking agency. Yeah, and so this is, this is a great challenge, right? Because when, when you give people victimhood, it's like, it's a relief in some ways. Uh, and, and it's not to say that it's not accurate in some ways as well. But the, 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 the problem I've always had with victimhood is, is the loss of moral agency, is the loss of, of responsibility. There's, there's an inegalitarian aspect to victimhood that seems very hard to, to recover from. And then you get sort of like an industry. Uh, and it doesn't usually come from the private sector. It usually comes from academia, government funding, and various other kinds of, of statist monopolies. But you get a kind of industry that, that, that feeds off the inegalitarian nature of victimhood and, and exacerbates it. I, and I think it's much to the detriment of the group that they, they claim to represent. And that's, again, that's a really, really brief overview. But I think that really caring for other human beings means giving them responsibility. I think a lack of responsibility is like an addiction. It's like a drug. You can give it to someone, they'll feel better in the short run. But I think it really decays their sense of, of purpose and efficacy in the long run. And so, but when you've had people who've been told that they're victims and, and they can do whatever they quote want in a sense, because they're victims, everything will be excused. When you bring responsibility back to the equation, there almost seems to be a recoil and a, and a backlash against that. And I think that's a real shame because I think that we grow when we accept well, more and more responsibility. We grow when we accept responsibility over and above what we should. I think we have to reach further to take responsibility for our lives, even than what history may dictate, what, what gender discrimination or racial discrimination may dictate. I think we have to swallow that big, bitter pill of responsibility. And I think that's the only way to outgrow it. It seems that focusing on the victimhood seems to be a kind of paralysis. That's the end of my rant. I just sort of wanted to, to get your, your thoughts on that. I, I, I really do tend to agree with that. Um, I think some of the harshest criticism that I received from feminists was when I wrote about my sexual assault when I was 14. Um, not so much the assault itself, but the fact that uh, when I wrote about it, I wrote about the fact that leading up to that, um, leading up to what happened, I made some serious glaring, like neon colored errors in judgment. And I knew that they were errors when I was making them. And like, I knew yeah, this isn't a good idea. Not a good idea. But, yeah, nothing will ever happen to me. And because you're, you know, a teenager, right? And uh, and that when it was over and I was I was okay, you know, I was I was scared, I was shaken. Um, wasn't physically hurt. 
but um, I, I actually, on the walk home, in the time it took me to walk home, I looked at what part I had played, right, in leading up to what happened. And uh, even the things that I did while it was happening, right, like, because I did the whole resisting physically, you know, saying no, all of that stuff, right, um, trying to be firm, even though, you know, you're scared, so it's hard to be firm when you're scared. Uh, and uh, the fact that because I had made those mistakes, then I knew that I didn't have to make those mistakes again. You know, that I had, I had actually a great deal of power in that situation leading, leading up to it, all the way through it. Um, I had a huge amount of agency in, you know, of choices, choices, you know, a choice between A and B, choice between A, B and C. And, uh, and it was partly based on my choices that what happened happened. And uh, that helped me get my sense of safety back. That right, really, because if, if it's entirely outside your control, then in a sense you have to live in fear for the rest of your life. Is that's that, right. Like I keep right. saying, I keep saying is, is when you are the equivalent of the person who gets struck by lightning while sitting in their living room on a clear day, right, then nothing you do was nothing you did, so therefore nothing you ever do can prevent it from happening again. And, you know, I got called a victim blamer. I got called self-hating, um, and uh, that I was taking responsibility for the assault, you know, and I was taking blame off of them. And even though I've stated completely in the article that, you know, it, it was their fault. They made a choice to assault me. Um, but I could have prevented it if I'd been smarter. And it wouldn't have involved doing anything. It wouldn't have been involved putting on a burqa or hiding in my house. It, it would have just involved thinking about my own safety, you know, and and not doing completely stupid things that I knew were stupid when I was doing them. And so that whole argument that I was victim blaming just seemed completely ridiculous. Uh, well, and know. it is very much, well, and of course, I just, of course, want to say how incredibly and desperately sorry I am that that, that occurred for you. That's just oh. absolutely heinous and, and wrong. And I just, I know you're over it but to, to a large degree. I just want to express my incredible sympathy for that. But it seems to, very much at odds with the argument, like to say that if you should take some level of responsibility for being in that situation, and this is a trivial example that Camille Paglia wrote about many years ago, which is to say, if you leave your wallet on a park bench in Central Park and someone takes it, the person who takes it is wrong. And they're they're a still a thief. They're still a thief, and then that does not excuse what they're doing. But you did leave your wallet on a park, and, right? There, there is something that you did that allowed that to get stolen more easily. And uh, that's a trivial example. I just wanted to point it out because it women, yeah, but, but feminists say that that we want women to have have power and to have to to feel a sense of control and so on within their own lives. But at the same time, they're saying that there are these malevolent, inescapable patriarchal uh, patriarchal forces that can rend your life apart at any time, and no matter what you, you do. do. And it's like, well, which is it? Am I supposed to, to have power? Or am I helpless yeah. victim of the storm-tossed clouds? I mean, you that's know, that's what I can't figure out. Saying that there's nothing that you can do to prevent yourself from being a victim of sexual assault or being a victim of anything. Um, is uh, is really taking power away from uh, the individual. And, you know, it might be nice to say, well, we need to change society. Um, in the case of something like rape, I, I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think there are 
biological factors involved. Um, ironically, uh, now that we have uh, abortion and, and long-term birth control and things like that, it, it may be reduced just by biological means um, because if it wasn't an effective uh, reproductive strategy, people wouldn't do it. And so much of sex in nature um, is uh, like between animals is is kind of aggressive and forceful and and all of that. So I think that it's always going to be it's one of those things. Just like with uh, with anger, aggression of any kind, it's it's going to always be there to some extent. It's never going to completely go away. But basically, what feminists seem to be wanting to do is. They want to tell women, you shouldn't have to do anything to protect yourself, and you shouldn't have to do anything, uh, think about making wise choices or, you know, uh, adjust your life in any way. Um, It's society that should have to change. And while it's a laudable goal to change society, and I think that there's definitely uh, ways to work on that, and there's there's definitely ways to, uh, because we all have these, we have these sort of instinctive, drives um, that can lead us, but we're supposed to be able to get ourselves above that. And, well, and it's, it's not just women. I mean, um, men, we have to be careful as well. I mean, you don't go oh, into yeah. a biker bar with assless chaps on and uh, a Liberace <laughs> top. Uh, you know, there are things that, that men need to do to avoid physical attack as well. Uh, you know, I think, I think men, uh, need to be more worried about that than women since men are probably three to four times more likely to be victims of violence to begin with. Um, and the really, uh, interesting thing that I found was that I was reading, um, uh, an article about, uh, depiction of violence, uh, gendered violence in the Globe and Mail, uh, that I mentioned in one of my videos. And he said, uh, mentioned something about how women are much more afraid than men of being violently attacked. Um, even though men are three to four times more likely to be violently attacked. And uh, men are more afraid of property crime, even though women are slightly more likely to be the victims of property crime, victims of purse snatchings and things like that, Um, or, you know, just uh, break-ins, things, uh, getting their cars stolen from. And when you look at... Sorry, I would argue that that's because... There's more that men can do. Uh, sorry, men are more afraid of property crimes. Is that right? Did I? They are more afraid of property crimes, and I actually think that it's uh, it's because of those gender roles that have existed forever, right? Where uh, a woman brings to the relationship, uh, it's it's even just falling into the things that men and women find attractive to look at. You know, men want to look at pictures of naked, young, fertile women. And women want to look at pictures of essentially rich men and or men in firemen outfits or in uniform. You know, men who are representing what they have. Yeah, alpha male status do, dudes, right? right? Whether it's physical so, strength or or wealth, it's alpha male status. Strength, right? wealth. Well, it's 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 what the man brings, what he can bring in resources, right? She's she's showing off. And, and men are attracted to her because of what she brings in her physical form, right? Fertility, youth, all of the things that are attractive. Um, when you're looking at having children and you're living in a cave 20,000 years ago and, you know, you're going to need to have eight babies to have two of them survive. So she's got to be young. She's got to be able to, to, she's got to be healthy, right? And then you look at 
what women are attracted to in men, the signs of wealth, the signs of, you know, of, of work, right? Signs of work. And uh, so what they bring as far as resources. So when you look at what women fear to have damaged, they fear to have their bodies damaged, right? Uh, right men right. fear to have their resources taken. And all of this sort of, I was thinking about it, like maybe it all ties into what makes them sexually attracted to the opposite sex. Right. That's so, you know, that, that could be a great deal to do with it. Um, men definitely, uh, I think they, they do need to be a little bit more um, aware of the, the greater danger, the greater risk that they have of being attacked. And one thing that I find really ironic in how fearful women are of being attacked and, and how uh, there's usually a great deal of talk um, about uh, women being targeted for violence, women being targets, women, you know, violence against women, blah, 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 um, is that even when you look at things like muggings, uh, women now have as much mobility as men do, right? I mean, they, they're out, they're about, they're walking around, sometimes at night, they're, they're out in the world, just as mobile as men. And yet, even criminals would rather attack a man than a woman. You would think that b women being weaker, women being more vulnerable, women being easier targets, that women would be the majority of muggings. Women would be the majority of uh, robberies, robbery victims. But it's still men. Right, right. Even yeah, and I mean, when I was sort of thinking about, I was, I start with the personal look for the data and then try and develop some sort of theory because I think uh, personal experiences are sort of very important. And given that I was um, uh, spanked and, and beaten as a kid by my mom, and given that most of my friends were spanked or hit by their moms, uh, you can, and, and given that most of the discipline that occurred for me when I was a kid, with the exception of one headmaster at boarding school who caned me, was being hit by women. Uh, again, it was one of these things where I sort of popped out into, into the theory of gender relationships, where, where I was told that the big problem men is, is men hitting women. And it's like, well, wait a sec, I've never, uh, with the exception of one headmaster, I've never been hit by a man, but I've been hit by probably a dozen women uh, over the course of my life. And again, it's just one of these things where you sit there and say, well, wait a second. I mean, yeah. this doesn't even come close to my, didn't they ask any men when they were going? <laughs> anyway, so it, that's sort of where, again, where I'm it, like, well, how does this make any sense empirically or factually, let alone, anyway, so I just it, wanted it to point that sense, out. It makes sense to our medulla oblongatus. It, it does. Um, because people are simply going to understand on, on a very basic level that men are, more, potentially more dangerous than women, just because they are physically stronger. And, and um, also I think it has a lot to do with, uh, because patterns of violence between men and women tend to differ quite a bit. Um, women do tend to be more violent within their little sphere, within their family, right? And men, uh, I read uh, in one study that even extremely violent men, um, tend to be more violent outside of their relationships than within them. Um, whereas with women, it's completely the other way around. And when you look at uh, the woman being sort of in the, the domain of home, that's her sphere of existence. That's where she acts. 
But that's that's all that matters fundamentally. Like if if someone gave me the opportunity to change the world, oh, what a lovely what a lovely idea that would be. If somebody gave me the opportunity to change the world, I would say let's change the way that that babies and and infants are raised. Just give me five years, you know, five years to provide <laughs> all the love and nurturing and resources that could conceivably be showered upon uh, children, uh, and and we would have a different world. And that is largely the role of women in society, whether it's, uh, you know, moms or, or as I see a lot, as a stay at home dad, grandmoms taking care of kids or, or daycare workers who are almost always women or teachers or whatever, then uh, what I, I would want that because it's so what seems to be missing from the, the explication of the cycle of violence within society, which again, we all want to do our best to arrest and break is that these are men raised by women. These are men. It's a great well, line from Fight Club, you know, 78 percent of the men incarcerated in the u.s were the products of single mother households right but even if it's a dual again for reasons of breastfeeding and and all of that uh, if if it's a, even if it's two parent household uh, it is um uh, it's moms who primarily uh, stay home yes and so when we look at uh, a, an adult male uh without looking at the fact that he grew up largely in a matriarchy that that women and it's not to blame all women for it's just to look at the simple facts that these are products of uh, of women uh, women's yes. upbringing uh, and and if we don't see that then it's really and that you know there's no greater power disparity between a parent and a child or a caregiver and a child i mean the power disparity between uh, a husband and wife is non-existent relative to the power disparity between parent and child and so with that power disparity with that level of authority with that level of formation of the personality uh, you pointed out in one of your videos uh, again very powerfully i think that uh, uh, boys receive less nurturing less care there's a lot more sort of suck it up walk it off uh, yeah. and don't cry and it's like but if we could just change that and give uh, uh, boys uh, the same level of nurturing that we give girls uh, i mean but, uh, which would largely be uh, an issue which women would have to address with women i mean i don't know if a lot of women will listen to men about I, parenting but they will listen you know, to other women why not I make that i don't folk? know i don't know that that we need to give uh boys the same level of nurturing and empathy and care that we we give girls i think that I think that we need to take what we do with girls and what we do with boys and kind of figure out a way somewhere in the middle. Because frankly, there's a great deal to be gained by being told to suck it up when you're a kid. By being told that, yeah, these stitches are going to hurt, but uh, I'm not going to lie, but you are a brave girl and uh, I know you can handle it. Oh, so you mean like coddling as opposed to empathy? Yes. Yeah, empathy is about the long-term health and needs of the child, which, yeah, yeah. yeah it's not kissing every and, until it falls off. And, you know, I, I do tell my own kids, you know, suck it up, princess, or, you know, uh, oh, what do I tell my boys? Pull up your big girl panties um, sometimes because uh, they, they have a good enough sense of humor to take it, and sometimes they'll throw it back at me when I hit my thumb with a hammer. But um, it's... Uh, you know, and we, we do a lot of joking around, uh, you can, you can just tell how terrified my children are of me when I tell them, you know, you're five minutes away of be from becoming an infanticide statistic and they just laugh. Right. Um, but, uh, cause it's, it's just, they know if I actually stop joking and get quiet, that's when I'm running out of patience. But, um, but that, uh, you know, I think I think that we really need to find a balance between um, between 
coddling and and the kind of uh, the way we deal with boys, which was a, a way that I really tried not to deal with my boys. Um, but I did try and and uh, give all my kids the kind of upbringing that I had because I was extremely secure in the fact that my parents both loved me and were both very, very much uh, invested in me doing, you know, in me being okay, you know, no matter what. And uh, my mom, she, she was a bit of a, she was a disciplinarian. Um, she was another one of those, uh, you know, she, she would get frustrated. She'd put her hands in her hair and go, that's it, I'm moving away from home or something like that. Um, and, and she could, and then it would just kind of break the, the tension and we'd all kind of have a laugh. But, um, and, and my dad was always just sort of a very quiet presence. Um, but I remember when I was 10, I got beat up by, uh, a bully who was, he was about a year older than me and he was picking on a friend of mine and, uh, wouldn't stop. So I hit him. And then he ended up, uh, he bloodied my nose and gave me a fat lip and, and uh, a shiner. And uh, I went home to my mom and she said, well, oh my God, what's ha- what happened to you? And, and I said, well, Ronnie beat me up. And, and she says, well, uh, you know, why would he do that? And I said, well, I hit him. And she looked at me and she says, well, what did you think was going to happen? And, uh, and she fixed my, my bruises up and, and she got me all sorted out and, and, you know, helped me feel better and cuddled me and stuff. But, uh, she did not go march into his house and tear a strip off of his mom. She said, if he starts to really pick on you or anything, if he starts to like single you out, you let me know and I'll do something. But I'm, you hit him, you know, what did you think was going to happen? Right, right. So, now I do want to. Sorry, I do want to make sure that um, my listeners do get the opportunity to uh, to to read. Uh, you you have a blog and and uh, you have uh, of course the YouTube channel, which is Girl Writes What. Could you want to make sure that you uh, get the the blog name out uh, for my listeners <laughs> to go and peruse your your writings as they see fit? Um. Yeah. It's it's actually called Owning Your Shit. So, um, it, it's really about agency. Um, or I, it tries to be about agency and personal responsibility and kind of examining uh, things from a non-victim standpoint. Uh, and I don't know, it's, it's, I, I, this, is, this is one of the huge failures of feminism that, uh, that I've seen, is that it, just, it really has not empowered women at all. It's, it's just left them... I mean, it seems to me that they're wa- they're safer than ever, but they're walking around in more fear than ever. Um, they uh, they seem to be more dependent than ever, um, whether it's on on men or whether it's on the state or whether it's on services or whether it's on uh, help. You know, special programs, flex time. You know, all of these things that we have to modify in order to make them woman friendly, and. Uh, so I, I just, it, it seems to me that, uh, and, and honestly, how, how are you going to get women into politics if all you talk about in the context of women is how they're victimized all the time? Uh, I wouldn't elect an official that I thought was uh, weak enough to be victimized all the time. So when I look at women as a group and I hear 
what's constantly portrayed in the media, um, I, I really have a hard time. I, that person, that that woman, would have to be a, a seriously kick-ass woman, like with an attitude like Margaret Thatcher. Uh, maybe not her politics, but her attitude. Um, but uh, in order for me to trust her, um, because it, the 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 respect of of women um, as capable and competent and powerful and all of that's been undermined. Um, as far as I'm concerned, by by feminist advocacy, and uh, and all of well, all of the whining that they do. So, right. Well, yeah, I'm not sure. For me, trusting a politician wouldn't have something to do with gender or much at all. That's <laughs> a category as a whole. I think I would be unable to go over there. Yeah. Well, but again, so sorry. Again, it's it's uh, YouTube.com. Uh, girl writes what all one word to to find your videos and um, owning your shit. Was it is it owningyourshit.com? It's owningyourshit.blogspot.com.blogspot.com for people who want. I really do want to take you uh, take time to thank you for a really really enjoyable and interesting conversation. And uh, I hope we can talk again. I hope so too. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Take care. You too.